Lucy Manning's lush dual timeline stories dealing with family secrets and female friendships, all set in glorious international settings, have drawn favourable comparison with blockbuster authors like Penny Vincenzi. And her latest book, The French Gift, is very much in that vein, a tale of loyalty and betrayal in World War II Germany and Paris today, based on the true story of an iconic French resistance fighter. I'm sure you'll find it won't disappoint. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on the show today, Kirsty talks about the remarkable woman who inspired the French gift, an amazing jewellery find, and a medieval wall garden that all featured in some of her bestsellers. We've got the final week of our all-new Aussie giveaway, so enter the draw to be in to win an ebook copy of The French Gift. Just a reminder too, consider supporting the show on Binge Reading on Patreon. For the equivalent cost of a cup of coffee a month, you'll get exclusive fortnightly bonus content all about books you won't want to put down and the satisfaction of supporting popular fiction authors like Kirsty. Check us out on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading just a brief apology before we get going today the sound quality of this episode fluctuated a little bit Kirsty was deep in rural victoria and the wi-fi connection just tended to dance around a little now and then i hope you won't find it too distracting but now here's Kirsty. hi there Kirsty, and welcome to the show it's so good to have you with us Hello, thanks for having me. That's wonderful. Look, you're talking this morning from the Macedon Ranges in Victoria, a place made famous by the movie Hanging Rock. Yes, it was. And, of course, it was a novel before that. And I live right on the northern face of Mount Macedon in an old chestnut grove, and you can see Hanging Rock sometimes from my house. And I'm surrounded by gum trees. And if you walk up the hill just a bit further from where I am, you can look right across to the valley and to Hanging Rock. It kind of peers up from the valley floor. And it's very kind of mystical and magical. And Braemar College is just around the corner from my house. And my kids went there earlier in their early school career. And they were girls in the bell tower there. So very steeped in Australian folklore, I guess. It sounds like a wonderful place to be set as a writer. Yes, it is. It's it's private and um, quiet and very very beautiful. Very very lovely place to spend your day. Fantastic. Now we're talking about your fourth novel, The French Gift, but they've all got a very similar kind of um, feeling. You've set yourself a tradition of lush dual timeline stories with an international reach, dealing with family secrets and female friendships. This is a literature that you've been drawn to yourself, isn't it? Yes, it is. I guess when I started to write, people say just write what you love and what you're feeling at the time. And I guess 
a book that really captivated me when I was at university was Possession by A.S. Byatt that was set in multiple timeframes. And then later on, Geraldine Brooks' People of the Book, which traces, of course, the Haggadah through the ages. And it really, I really thought about the way that those books and that plot unfolded. Elizabeth Costiva is another one, toing and froing between history, past and present. And I just, I was really drawn to those stories. And I guess I've always loved historical fiction. And when it came to write my own story, I wanted, I started writing historical fiction, but I found that the contemporary thread just kind of started to weave its way in quite naturally. And now it's become kind of an enjoyment for me, I guess, because it really helps you as a writer, I find it keeps it keeps it fresh for me that we can do both, write, write a historical yeah. fiction book and write a contemporary book at the same time. Yes, yes. Now, the French gift moves between World War II France and Germany and the present day, and it interlinks two stories, that of two women who were imprisoned in a World War II German labour camp, and present-day Ellie, the daughter-in-law of one of them, who's preparing a memorial exhibition for her life. Where did the genesis for this story come from? Uh, a couple of different places, actually. I think writers are a bit like magpies. We kind of collect ideas and build a little nest, and from that a, a story kind of unfolds. The first one was a book of memoirs, I guess, of people on the Riviera pre-World War II and um, it was an era of decadent parties. I mean, Winston Churchill holidayed there, a lot of European aristocrats and socialites and even the Duke and Duchess of Windsor after their abdication holidayed there and they had the most outrageous parties and each summer they seemed to outdo each other sort of in the late 30s and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to set a party, a book, that started at one of these parties and and they had these incredible party games. And I thought, what if I had one of these party games and it went wrong? And that's that was kind of the beginning of my book. And at the same time, I was reading a memoir of Agnes Humbert and she was an early French resistance writer. She worked as a curator in a French museum and she really started writing a newsletter called Resistance. They had eight editions that were distributed uh, across Paris and they smuggled airmen out of Paris. And she kind of formed this, it was a very informal network, the Resistance, early on in Paris, and she was right at the heart of that. They used to meet up as a kind of a literary under the guise of being a literary kind of fan group or a book club, if you like, and they they would uh, do everything from map out the places where munitions were stored to, as I said, rescuing Allied soldiers and really fighting against the Vichy government, the French visions in Occupy Paris. And she she was caught and sent to the free rail of that and we only know of this because she smuggled like a true French woman a book of French philosophy she she had a book Descartes discourse on method and she smuggled that with her to the prison and in that philosophy book in the margin she kept a diary of her time in the free Marion factory and it was essentially a slave labor camp where 
French and European women were sent to work because it was too dangerous because the spitting of rayon involved lots of acid and very little airflow and uh, the acid literally ate away at their hands and feet and slowed their heart rate and ruined their, their eyesight and, and it made them very, very ill, desperately ill and they worked these women to the bone because, of course, the key to German success was fabric, warmth and keeping those supply lines open and, and they couldn't get access to natural fibres and forced um, women to work in them. And, and she comes in contact, Josephine, with Margot, the character from the party where it all went wrong in the Riviera and they form a tight friendship and really support each other through that time. And uh, and it's a story, it's it's bleak in parts. It's very dark. It's kind of a little-known pocket of World War II history, but it's also a lot about how, about courage and about resilience and about hope and just about how optimistic and funny humans are when they're really in quite the most adverse set of circumstances. So that, that was the starting point of my book because this Agnes Humbert had a wicked, wicked sense of humour in her diary and I really wanted to capture amongst the horror the, the wonderful humanity of her, of Agnes and that's what I hope I captured in Josephine, my heroine. And has Agnes's diary been translated into English or did you read it in the French? No, it was translated into English. It's published in English by the translator was Barbara Mello. I have read pockets of it in French, but my French is very rudimental. And I actually sent the French gift, a copy of the manuscript, to the French translator, Barbara Mello, and she read it cover to cover. And she she was really, I was really humbled and honoured because she was very complimentary at the homage I had managed to display towards Agnes while still writing a fictional story. She thought that I had got the balance just right. So that was probably one of the biggest compliments I could get. Yeah, that that was a wonderful thing to do. And then you made sure, of course, that the um, details were perfectly correct as well. Well, I think it's a tricky thing when you're writing historical fiction because you're always kind of trying to negotiate how far to lean into the truth. And I guess you need to really immerse people in a world that is true and create a world for them, whether it's a science fiction world or a um, World War II slave labour camp. Readers need to believe that. But I felt like because I was, uh, I guess, going into the area of real people ordeals and real people's life I really wanted to honor the, their experience and not I guess glorify it or commercialize it or just really I wanted to open up people's eyes to that experience and I find with all of my books certainly with Lily and that's the story of the Jews in the ghetto in Shanghai and and the story of the Cheapside Horde people come along with you for the story, but then there's a lot of references in the back of my book. So then they can go to the true story and see the facts for themselves. And I, I think a lot of my readers really enjoy that process of learning something new about history that they didn't know. So because they're very engaged readers and very clever readers, and they'll often write to me about their own little research hunt that they've been on. So it's it's a lovely 
a lovely part of guess of the writing is the reading and what readers take away from it. And I understand that in other books as well, you've had quite a sense of social awareness, what the social conditions were like, and just bringing to the fore some of the more serious aspects, even though the stories are great international emotional adventures at the same time. Yes, I am. I think I'm always, you know, conscious of the way that history has been told and history has been written. And as we know, history has been written largely by men and largely by educated men. And women's stories have sometimes been lost through history and especially like in uh, the, the Lost Jewels. It's the story of Essie and she was an underprivileged woman who was just working to, to make life better for her siblings. And Margot is a maid. She is certainly very, she's very underprivileged. She wanted to finish her education and then she wanted to travel. She has all of these dreams of things she would like to do, but the reality is that that just wasn't going to be the case for her because, and people I think find who work hard and quietly and solidly to make life their parents, their children, children, their siblings, they're seemingly ordinary stories, but I find that women have always been very strong and have always been kind of the emotional ballast of the family and and do really quite extraordinary things in a very quiet way to kind of drag everyone they love to a better future. And I think I think there's real power in that. And I think even though some women have not, they didn't have the time or the luxury to march in women's marches or like Margot, she um, didn't have the luxury of adequate legal representation. All of those stories and all of those outcomes are very much based on class and privilege and, and what you have, the power you have access to at the time and the voices you have access to the time. And I just try and write that into my story because I'm very aware of it. And I think, you know, as we look back through history, we can see that, you know, these women, we owe them a great deal. Yes, the hook for the French gift that you were referring to, Margot is an innocent young maid who is ordered by her employer to take part in what's supposed to be a hilarious party trick, a fake murder of one of the guests. And she's told that the guest is in on it and it's just going to all be a great laugh. And there is a lifelong outcome from that event that we're not going to give the storyline away here. But she she was so unprepared, ill-prepared and so trusting of the people around her, wasn't she? She was. And she had, I guess, been brought up to believe that was a cog in a machine and if she did what she told she would be looked after her mother also worked in the villa and that's just the way that life was and so she didn't question Mm. look your first book the midsummer garden was described as a fictional eat pray love and the australian woman's weekly described it as ripe for screen adaptation that sounds pretty marvelous and it was very much praised for the way that you handled food wine and the natural world it sounds as if these were 
personal passions of yours in this first book that you brought to the fore. Would that be right? They definitely were. I mean, uh, the Midsummer Garden came about from a holiday I took in France and I went to a walled garden and I imagined my character in that garden, some of the things that had happened and it sprang to life. And it was, I guess, all of my books are asking a question question that I grapple with in my own life and the Midsummer Garden was was about a walled garden in medieval times and it was about um, the metaphorical wall that modern we're within and that how to juggle that I guess that eternal balance people talk about balance I sometimes think that's very hard to achieve but you know as a woman you know in partnership in family and it's about a young woman grappling with how to balance a career and with the needs of the man that she wants to marry and and it's I guess her emotional coming of age and her realizing that you know we haven't had a lot of early books I mean my books generally do have older women who are educated my first um, character in um, the Midsummer Garden Pip she was a little younger finishing off her PhD and unmarried and it's not I mean, it is a love story, but it's not about the love story. It's about her, it's not about her quest for love because she has that when the book opens. It's actually about how she can finish her PhD and get to where she wants to be and do everything else she wants to do along the way. And I mean, I think that's, I mean, not all of us are going for our PhDs, but we're all trying to work out how to, how to, blend work and family and all of those sorts of things and yeah so that's that's where that started from grappling with that issue (laughs) it's like a personal identity story from the 15th century in France and modern day Tasmania isn't it right across that huge arc yeah Look, you mentioned The Lost Jewels, and that's another really fascinating story because it was a 17th century cache of jewels that were found in Cheapside, London, 300 years later. That was the truth of it, the greatest hoard of Elizabethan and Stuart jewellery in the world. And it disappeared again fairly quickly after it was discovered, I, I gather. Is that is that the basic underlying story yes I mean we only know I mean there have been uh curators working on this for years around the world and historians the bulk of the collection well we don't know if it's the bulk of the collection but there's about 300 pieces in at the Museum of London and some of the Victorian Albert but the general gist of the story was around the 1600s So around the time of the Great Fire of London and the plague, around and the Civil War, some time in that era, they don't know how many jewels were actually buried, but they think in excess of the 300, obviously, that they've managed to retrieve, were buried in a cellar in Cheapside. At that time, it was known as Goldsmiths Row. It was an area where all the gem cutters and stone traders were working. London, it was burgeoning with the Elizabethan era. Elizabeth had her ships all over the world and they were all bringing goods, including jewels and stones and gold and exotic ornaments from all around the world back to London. So London certainly was the centre of a burgeoning globalisation and colonialisation 
and I guess. And then so they were buried and then and seemingly forgotten about. And then in 1912, uh, a workman, a series of workmen were working on a work site in Cheapside and they literally put a pickaxe through a, well, they don't know if it was, they don't, the details are sketchy, but whether it was a trunk or just in the ground, and they literally started scooping up jewels. And we don't know, we don't know who these men are. They've remained anonymous. But what we do know is because H.M. Morton, the journalist, was supposedly at Stony Jack's, the pawnbrokers, on the day that they were discovered. And there are tales of workmen bringing in sort of football-sized clumps of clay. So if you imagine an AFL football coming into a, a pawnbroker, and and he would literally whip them upstairs and whip the mud, whip the football under the under the tap, and from the mud would fall like diamonds and turquoise and enamel and gold necklaces and champlain rings and emerald brooches. It was just quite extraordinary. And he he had just been employed by the Museum of London to keep a watch out for things that it because London was in a state, well, it's always in a state of excavation, isn't it? But things were being dug up all over London, everything from Roman ruins to treasures, mm. but nothing like this had been seen before. So he set about acquiring the jewels for from all the so-called navvies, the workers that brought it in, and apparently there was just a parade of workers because, of course, they'd all dug it up on the work site and flicked it into their pockets and down their pants and up their shirts and and so we don't know we don't know if he you know some of them I'm sure took the jewels home and gave them to their loved ones most of them would have pawned apparently uh, nobody turned up for work the next week because they all went up to Gravesend and got drunk for a week <laughs> with their with their newfound wealth so we don't really know. It disappeared, but we know that he acquired many a piece for the museum. And and so we don't know who buried the jewels. We don't know who discovered them. And we don't know how they really came to be in the Museum of London. So I thought, again, that's a, a great tale for fictionalising. Yeah, look, it is. And it sounds like you've had the most amazing journey in researching some of these stories, that story and the World War II Shanghai story. Tell us, have you had any specific adventures with your research that sort of left you feeling amazed? Uh, not really amazed, but I think with the Jade Lily when I was in Shanghai, that story came about, I wasn't there researching a novel. I was just on holidays with my family and we had stayed in the French concession and then we had switched to another hotel in Hongku because it had a swimming pool, of all things. And I had little children and I've discovered if you have a pool, that is gold when you travel. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we'd been out and about and we'd gone and got some food and some dumplings and we were and there were very narrow little streets. And somebody had pointed out on a red door down this tiny narrow laneway what looked to be a Star of David on the door. And I walked back to the hotel and the concierge at the hotel asked me how my day was. And, and I said, great. And I, I told him about the um, Star of David that I'd seen on the door. Because the thing about Shanghai is you don't see religious iconography anywhere. It's a communist country. There's nothing. 
there's no crosses, there's no, there's nothing. There's no um, stars, nothing. And and so I just asked him about it and he said, well, that area that you walked through or this whole area, Hongku, used to be the Jewish ghetto during the war. And I thought that I had studied history and, and he said, yes, 100,000 Jews lived here during the Second World War. I said, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, actually, if you go down to the end of the street tomorrow, take the children to the Jewish Refugees Museum. And so I, I, I went there and there's, there's a wall with the names of all the people who were here during, or in Shanghai during the war and they've got their suitcases and things they left Europe with because, of course, they're only allowed to take a suitcase and 10 Reichsmarks, as they were, 10, I guess, 10 German dollars, Reichsmarks, as they were called then, and, and their battered shoes and, and they lived alongside Chinese families in these tiny, tiny apartments and shared Chinese food and and really survived. They set up Jewish schools and a lot of the refugees were very educated because, of course, Shanghai was the only place you could go in the world without a visa. So they, China really opened their arms to the Jewish people when everyone else closed closed their doors and ignored what was happening. Shanghai did not. and And so I went through this Jewish museum just with my eyes just completely on sticks. I just couldn't believe the history I was seeing. And at the end of it, there was a little photo of two girls just standing in the street. And I think one of them had a hula hoop in her hand. And one one girl was Chinese and one girl was Jewish. And they both had Peter Pan collars. And I remember the Chinese girl was very pretty. She had dimples and they, they might have even had their arms around each other. And that was the beginning of the Jade Lily, I thought. Imagine if I told the story of, of the Jewish ghetto in Shanghai and it's the story of Romy having to flee Germany after Crystal Night and come to Shanghai and she grows up in Shanghai and she gets to understand the city through her Chinese best friend who was this little girl who she had her arms with. So sometimes I just see an image and, you know, a story just explodes. So that's how it started. That probably helps to explain too why you seem to have done very well with international translations of your books. You've got books in quite a number of different countries and languages, don't you? I do. I do. I was very touched when that one um, got picked up by the Jewish community in Israel and um, was reviewed in Jerusalem Post because I thought, you know, you you never know how um, books are going to be translated. So it was translated into Hebrew and but my books have been translated into, let me think, Russian, Serbian, uh, Dutch. German and some others. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's always a delight and a surprise when when the tra- yeah. translations come through. Yes, yes. Look, moving on from talking about your specific books to your wider career, tell us a little bit about your life before you started writing fiction and has that experience helped with your writing? Well, it's all cumulative, isn't it? I studied uh, literature at university, at Sydney Uni, and history, and a bit of law, a bit of industrial relations, 
and I wasn't sure whether to go and finish a law degree or do arts, but a legal internship one summer holidays made me realise I was going to go back and do my honours thesis in literature and not be a lawyer. So I did that and then went travelling for a year, had a kind of gap year after my year of university. And then I got a job with in publishing in Melbourne. So I kind of worked in various editorial roles, working my way up to the position of publishing manager or head of a list in non-fiction. I never worked in fiction. So I worked, but I guess with nonfiction, you're always dealing with people's stories and events and it's all about how to best tell that, the voice best to tell that story. So that was very useful training ground and I guess it was good to see the inner machinations of a um, publishing house. And then when I had kids, I left working full-time. Well, I kind of just had a slow break up with publishing I guess I just I started working part-time and then I started working contract and it was just getting trickier and trickier with children and with deadlines that never shifted so I started just doing some freelance journalism just writing features because uh, in a couple of the publishing companies that I worked for they obviously published magazines and newspapers as well so I just sort of put my hand up to write some articles here and there and they were really well received so I put my hand up to do more and I ended up doing lots of travel and features and I did a lot for Fairfax and also for SBS online uh, which was kind of new and exciting at the time and yeah so I was freelance working as a freelance journalist really when I started to cross into writing novels and that was partly sparked by that holiday in France and the wall garden, was it? It just came together there. Well, it did. I think I had done, I'd been in publishing. I had, I was going to a lot of writers' festivals because I was just interested in it. I was kind of edging closer and closer to writing a novel. I kind of did my research, if you like. I went to endless writers' festivals and talked to people. So I just kind of went from there. And I think, you know, turning 40 is always pretty formative in some way. Well, it's not always, but I think it kind of galvanises you. I thought, well, if not now, then when? <laughs> like, when am I going to do this? <laughs> like, you know, my kids were up and running, if you like. They're all at primary school. Well, they might have even been at high school then. I know they're all still high school now, but, you know, they were late primary school, so... You know, there's a there's a kind of a freedom a bit when your kids are a little older to do more space to write and more space for your own thoughts in your head, I guess. Things open yeah. up. The sky kind of gets a little higher as the kids get a little older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So turning to Kirsty as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading and we like to talk to you about your taste in books and recommendations you might have for other people. I don't know whether you actually are a binge reader, but what are the books that you're into at the moment and could you recommend any? I just read a great English thriller, The Passengers, by Louise Cavendish, a British writer. Lost me a bit at the end, but it held me... It was really tight right up until then. 
I think. So I was very intrigued by that. I love yeah. Jane Harper's work. I think I really enjoyed The Survivors. I'm reading a lot of crime at the moment. I like, I really like my, Michael Robotham. I think uh, he's extraordinary. And I've just reread Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Berendt. I think I think that is a really classic, uh, it's a crime book, but it's really thoughtful and it really, you know, the setting of Savannah, I've never been to Savannah, but he just, he just makes that city scene. It is extraordinary piece of work. And uh, yeah, and I aspire. So I'm writing... I'm writing a new book at the moment and I'm reading that to kind of feed the brain to kind of, I think writing, reading good writers helps you become a better writer. Yes, yes. Look, at this stage in your writing career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change? Million dollar question. I think, I don't know, I think I'd love to be a writer that was a a plotter that knew exactly what I was writing and when and was systematic about it. I think I changed my process. <laughs> I tend to be a lot more cavalier and it creates a lot of stress for myself and I'd like to be, you know, people talk about plotters or pantsers and I tend to be more of a pantser but with key plot points in my head and it all just kind of gets thrown out onto the page in a frenzy at the end after years of research. So I think, I think I'd like to be more systematic. Does that mean you also do several drafts? I do, I do. I think yeah, it, that makes a lot of work, doesn't it? It does make a lot of work, but I seem, you know, I seem to get better in the rewriting. So, you know, we all have our process, sure. I think, yeah. and yeah. and I, I've come to know that uh, to make peace with what goes onto the page at first isn't perfect. I've learned to make peace with that and mm -hmm. and really trust trust that I will get there because I know I can do it now. Yeah, yeah. And let yeah. go of perfection. Look, I think that's been a big one for me because it's it's okay. If it's done, it's better than perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look, looking ahead for the next 12 months, you mentioned you're working on a new book. Can you tell us anything about that? But what does your next 12 months hold in store? Well, my next 12 months, we've got a big 12 months because we're just kind of, uh, as a lot of your listeners will know, getting back on our feet after lockdown in Melbourne and we have a restaurant and wine shops. So we're just, <laughs> we're just putting that all back together and it's all going well and getting that up and running. I've got a year 12. So that's all happening in our house. And professionally for me, I am working on two manuscripts at the moment, both mysteries, again, both based on forgotten snippets of history, but one is pure historical and one is a dual time frame. So I'm tag-teaming both books at the moment and seeing where they go. And can you give us a hint for their setting? Are they Europe-based? Europe uh, both are Europe, actually, both are Europe. One is another kind of heads back into the war and another one is set in Paris. Now, look, just for those who are outside of Australia, and there's quite a lot of listeners, Year 12, translate that for them. Year 12 is the final year of school in Australia. So I guess, yeah, it's like the year before you head off to university. So it's the year of exams and new beginnings. And I guess I write about that a bit 
it's funny what you write yourself towards. You know, even my contemporary character has a child, Hugo, who is leaving school and is in no way um, resembles my own child in terms of personality. But what it is, I guess, instructive about and I guess writing my emotions onto the page was that grace of letting go of as your child. It's that really... It's that mixed feeling of um, pride that they're so independent and strong and letting go because, you know, they're off. They're doing their own thing, making their own decisions and plotting their own path and and it's about having the, it's about making peace with that and enjoying that ride. Yes, great. Look, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online? They can find me on Instagram, Kirsty Manning AU. Or on Facebook, Kirsty Manning Writer. Are you? Am I Kirsty Manning? Yeah, Kirsty Manning Writer. And I love hearing from them. People write to me all the time, and and it's been great because I've people have been writing to me so much about the French Gift more than any other book about how much they love it. But people are still discovering, you know, the lost jewels and the Jade Lily, and writing to me and telling me about that or how it's affected them. And I, yeah, it's great. I think please do, if you've got a question or you just want to say something, just reach out and let me know because it's just so joyous because we're in a room by ourselves and the fact that somebody has taken the time to to write about your work or write to you is really humbling. That's lovely, Kirsty. Thank you so much. And in the show notes for this episode, we'll put links to all of those, your books and your social media, so people will be able to find them quite easily. That's wonderful. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you. It's just been a joy. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.